you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. I've spent most of the month of December uh, in various forms of uh, bodily weakness and had hoped that I was uh, over it after my time in, uh, in Ecuador, uh, but Friday night uh, it uh, began to hit again, and uh, so I, I come uh, with that uh, felt sense of weakness, uh, but the Lord is able to make us strong and to give sufficient grace uh, in, his, in our uh, felt weakness. I, I trust I'll not be uh, too uh, <clears throat> uh, much of a bother if there's an occasional cough. Uh, so John chapter 1 beginning at verse 1, reading through to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your holy word. Father, what a, a stunning thing that such words should be written, that such things should be said and declared about that one who came into the world. And our Father, we pray that you would give us the ability through the word to behold his glory. And Father, having beheld his glory, uh, that we may believe upon him and rejoice in him all the days of our life. Our Father, do magnify him as we spend this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, the whole of our faith as Christians rests ultimately upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. If he is not who the Bible says he is, and if he did not accomplish in his death what the Bible says he accomplished, and if he did not rise from the dead, then the whole of our faith is vain, and as the Apostle Paul says, we are without hope. Now the Lord Jesus is the great figure of human history. Uh, he is the one figure in all lands and at really, in a sense, at all times over the past 2,000 years who has been held in a singular regard. And people have tried to wrestle with who this Lord Jesus is. 
and who is he and what did he accomplish? And so for 2,000 years, theologians and church councils have sought to grapple with the truth of his identity and his mission. And particularly the reality that is presented in this text that he was the word and that he took on flesh. For some, he was so clearly divine that it seemed impossible that he could be a true man. And for others, he is so obviously and clearly and fully and wonderfully and beautifully human that they wrestled with the thought that he could be God. Now, this text brings these things together in a very wonderful way. And what I want to do, focusing upon verse 14 <coughs> this morning, is to present three things from God's word. I want to look together, first of all, at the identity of the word, secondly, the incarnation of the word, and then thirdly, the glory of the word. Let's begin with the identity of the word. Now, John's gospel, as I read here a moment ago, begins with echoes from the first words of the Bible. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning. But what John is reminding us is not just at the beginning, but as it were, before the beginning. Before there were stars, and before there were planets and galaxies, and before there were forests and birds and animals and oceans and fish, and long before there was a man and a woman, there was the word, the logos. Uh, that's a Greek word that has kind of penetrated our language, certainly our, our church language. But we ask the question, what does the word, word, mean? Well, we say, well, that's easy, isn't it? I mean, a word, a word is a word. A logos is a logos. It's a part of speech. It's a way in which communication is made between one person and another. It's the verbal encapsulation of ideas or concepts or physical reality. One dictionary says that the word, that, that word, the word word, is a unit of language consisting of one or more spoken sounds or their written representation that function as a principal carrier of meaning. Now, this term, logos, occurs well over 300 times in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus used it all the time in speaking of his sayings or his teachings or his doctrine or his sermon. Sometimes it conveys command and authority. Isn't that one who said to him, only say the word and my servant will be healed. Sometimes it conveys the whole message of the gospel. Sometimes it refers to the whole of God's written revelation. But in our text, it refers to a person. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer uh, speaks to this uh, terminology in describing the Lord Jesus. In this chapter called God Incarnate, from Knowing God, Packer writes, he speaks first of the word. There was no danger of his being misunderstood. Old Testament readers would pick up the reference at once. God's word in the Old Testament is his creative utterance, his power in action, fulfilling his purpose. The Old Testament depicted God's utterance, the actual statement of his purpose as having power in itself to affect the thing purposed. 
Genesis 1 tells us how at creation God said, let there be, and there was. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, he spoke, and it came to be. That's Psalm 33 and verse 6. The word of God is thus God at work. The word is a divine person. And in describing him as the Logos, John is telling us that this is a person who communicates. He is God's purposeful revelation, a person who embodies all of God's heart and all of God's mind and all of God's desires. John tells us this word was there with God before all things, and in fact, he was the means by which all things came into existence. What a what a stunning thing to say about somebody that you know. John wrote this about a man that he knew, a man that he spent three years with, and in contemplating his life and interaction with him, this is his conclusion. This man was with God before all things. He is the agent of creation. There is not <coughs> excuse me, a thing in the natural order that did not come about through his creative activity. And so as you put John 1 and Genesis 1 together, it's no surprise to read that not only was this one called the word with God, but that he was in fact with God, or was God. And this is really, Packer makes this argument in his chapter on God incarnate, this is really the stumbling block of Christianity. And in many ways, this is the linchpin. In, in, even in regard to the death and the burial and the resurrection, all of that is predicated upon who he is. I mean, he could have died and even risen from the dead, but if he was not the word made flesh, this is really the idea that is being got, brought about. Now, there are those who have claimed that they want to seek the historical, authentic Jesus. And no doubt on various networks, Discovery Channel and whatever, you know, there are documentaries around this year and around Easter time about the real Jesus, the real historic Jesus. And, and what they mean by this is, is, is that they want a Jesus that they can comprehend, a Jesus who is not divine. But we must assert to the skeptical age, the Gospels were written either by eyewitnesses or they were written by those who had access to eyewitnesses. These men who wrote the Gospels knew Jesus and walked with Jesus. And they heard, even in their own lifetime, all kinds of conflicting things about the Lord Jesus, including by some that he was demon-possessed or that he was an illegitimate child. And yet they loved this Jesus, and they suffered for Jesus, and many of them died for Jesus. And they suffered for him, and they died for him because they believed that he had proven these claims in regard to himself. Now, the claims of Jesus that he makes of himself are truly incredible. I mean, here's a man, you would say, well, I just want the historic Jesus. I just want to go with the red letters of the Bible. Well, in the red letters of the Bible, you have things like that he is the judge of the living and the dead. He asserted that one day all the nations of the world would be gathered to himself. Here was a man who claimed that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. 
He was a man who told his disciples if they did not love him more than their family members or wives, husbands, children, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, that they could not be his disciples. He is seen in the scriptures as taking the attributes of God. He forgives sins. He brings healing to the blind and the deaf and the lame. He conquers the devil and he raises the dead. He alters the elements of nature. The demons of hell bow down to him. And he is able to create matter as he feeds thousands with but a few loaves and fishes. Here is a man whose self-description went along these lines. He said of himself, this is Jesus' autobiography. I am the bread of life. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the great shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to God except through me. He took upon his lips the most sacred name of God in the scriptures, declaiming, uh, proclaiming to his enemies that before Abraham was, I am. And he says, and if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He is saying more that he came from, than that he came from God. He is saying more than he was sent by God and more than he bore a unique relationship with God. He is saying with boldness and clarity that he is God in human flesh. And that brings us secondly to consider the incarnation of the word. For we read here in John 1.14, the word became flesh. Now that the word should exist is one thing, but that the word should become flesh is quite another now, if we understand the deity of the word, there, there would be several things about him that would seem to us perfectly acceptable if we were writing the story. The word spoke, certainly. <clears throat> the word raised the dead. The word opened the eyes of the blind. The word will bring forth judgment upon the earth. But that's not what's being articulated. The word, we are told, became flesh. He took on flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. It means enfleshment. Now, he's saying something more than he entered human history as a man. The Greeks in their mythology had gods, Hercules and others, uh, demigods who would come down in the form of flesh. No, he has a true humanity that begins in the womb of a woman. That's how all life begins. All human life begins in the womb of a woman. And so he was born of a woman. And if Mary could have gone in for an ultrasound, had they had those 2,000 years ago, they would have been able to trace him throughout all of the forms of human development as he went from that little single cell that divides to a baby ready to be born. He took on flesh, and not the flesh of kings and not the flesh of emperors. He took on Jewish flesh, not during the reign of David, but in the days of Roman oppression. Jewish flesh was then, and obviously in many places today, a despised flesh. And he took on peasant flesh. But the point is not about his ethnicity or his social status. It's on his humanity. He took on 
human flesh. Most of us aren't Jewish and, and most of us are not peasants, but we are flesh. And John is very particular here. This language is very succinct. He's not simply saying the word became a man. Now, the Bible has a doctrine of, of humanity that in many ways is very exalted. Humans have a, a dignity as image bearers of God. In fact, they're described in the scriptures as a little lower than the angels crowned with glory and honor. <coughs> Excuse me. So that when the Bible wants to say how weak we are, it doesn't so much call us men, but it points to our flesh. Isaiah said, all flesh is as grass and as loveliness as the flower of the field. Man is not to trust in flesh whose life is in its nostrils. In fact, so derogatory is the term flesh, and being very careful in what I say here, don't misunderstand what I say. But so derogatory in some sense is the term flesh that it became synonymous with man's sinful desires. The body of Jesus, we are told, looked just like the body of others. Even though he was sinless, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Understand what I mean when I say that you would not know that he was the word in flesh to look at him. Flesh again speaks of weakness. Flesh goes, grows weary. It, it bruises. It, it breaks. It tears. It ages. It wrinkles. And it fades away. John Calvin said this. He says, flesh. This word expresses his meaning more forcefully than if the evangelist had said Christ was made man. He wanted to show to what a low and abject state the Son of God descended from the height of his heavenly glory for our sake. When the scriptures speaks of man derogatorily, it speaks of him as flesh. <clears throat> How great is the distance between the spiritual and the glory of the word of God in the stinking filth of our flesh. Yet the son of God stooped so low that he took on himself that flesh, which is subject to so many miseries, the word born of God before all ages and always dwelling with the Father became flesh. He became one with us and dwelt among us. And part of what John is conveying here is that the Son of God did not simply dip down into human history. He dwelt among us. He lived here. He lived with us for 33 years. He dwelt. And the word there is a word that can mean tabernacled, and that certainly carries with it a, a certain power. But the idea perhaps is more of, of, of he pitched his tent. And, and that means something different then than it does now. He built a house here. He was among us as a baby, as a toddler, as a child, as a teenager. They would have had a bar mitzvah then, whatever they would have done. There is a worker, a son, a brother, a member of the synagogue. But I believe that John is also glorying in the reality that belonged to John and his fellow disciples. He dwelt among us. 
not just people, but us. He was around me. And that brings us then to consider the glory of the word. When we were with him, when he lived among us, we beheld his glory. When we looked at him, when we beheld him, when we contemplated him, when we inspected him, when we were close to him. And again, you know, there's a, there's a saying that says, don't get to know your heroes because you'll be disappointed. And sometimes it is said, now again, thankfully, some people, the more you get to know them, the lovelier they are. But sometimes you get to know somebody. I mean, you see not just their strength, but you see their weaknesses. You see their blots and their blemishes. But when he was there with him and and he and his fellow disciples, they beheld his glory. Now, this word glory is a word that speaks of of honor. Uh, It it speaks of praise. It's, It's a term that can be used even of a physical manifestation Uh, a shining manifestation of God. The glory of God shone around them, we read. Now, that was a physical manifestation. There was a light that came from the angels, a light that came from heaven upon the angels. There was a light that shone when when Saul of Tarsus was on the way (coughs) to Damascus, a light brighter than the noonday sun. There was a light that shone from Jesus on the mount of transfiguration and when we speak of glory we can think of different kinds of glory there's intellectual glory there's athletic glory people are enshrined in various hall of fames and they have their bus there or they have a plaque describing what they have done and that's their glory there's political glory There's the glory of human beauty and human skill. There is the beauty and glory of the created uh, order, certain things, again, depending on what you like, more glorious than others. But John says we saw a unique glory here. And if this isn't true, if what John saw wasn't there or if john is mistaken then really ultimately we're all just a bunch of superstitious people what happened here what did john see well we find out that john saw his glory glory he says as of the only begotten of the father that's the first thing he says about this glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father that is there was a unique glory that he saw that jesus was the only begotten of the father that is that he was uniquely the son of god And in coming to understand what this meant in the Jewish mindset, we need to understand that in saying of somebody that he is the unique son of God or the one and only son of God in this way, (coughs) excuse me, what they're saying is that when we use that word son of, so Barnabas was a son of encouragement, full of encouragement. 
Uh, there were others described in the Bible as being sons of Belial. And that meant that they were full of wickedness, that they took on that wickedness. But they saw in Jesus one who was the son of God. And in saying that, John is announcing, as we have seen already in this text, his essential deity. Now, if you were a Jew, you knew something about God. You knew that God was a spirit. God was not a man. The Bible tells us God is not a, a man, nor is he the son of man. God doesn't have flesh and blood as we have. God is a spirit, infinite and eternal, right? Uh, that's our doctrine. And so for somebody to look at someone that you're spending time with, that you've spent three years with, you've eaten meals with, you've walked around with, you've, you've heard all of the scuttlebutt about who he is, and some of that scuttlebutt was quite remarkable. Who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. What an extraordinary thing. I've been privileged to be around some important people, some great preachers, great teachers. I, I've never been tempted to think that they were anything other than people. But even those who didn't know him well speculated that there was a glory to him that was more than an ordinary man. But John said, we saw his glory, and that glory is that he was the only begotten of the Father. Now, can you imagine having this discussion? And Peter brings this up when Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And he said... I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is, I believe that you are our God in flesh. And that's why you can forgive sins. And that's why you speak as you, you do. And that's why you're holy and harmless. And that's why you can raise the dead. Imagine having that conversation. Guys, who do you think he might be? I mean, I think he's the son of God. I think he is uniquely the son of God. And then we read full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the father... And now a further description of this only begottenness, full of grace and truth. Now John's going to go on to say that the law came through Moses. Now that law, as, as we have studied many, many times, that's a grand and glorious law. Moses is one of the central figures in all of human history. But when you think of Moses, you think of the man that went up on Sinai and received the law. So you could say, in a sense, Moses was full of the law. A law which had the power to reveal the will of God, a law that could condemn but could not save. But the one that we beheld, the one whose glory that we beheld, was the only begotten of the Father, full, he says, first of all, of grace. Full of kindness full of mercy, full of favor, full of a desire to do good for sinners, 
in light of their deficits, in light of the reality that they could never earn, but he had a heart to show them kindness in return for their rebellion and in, in, in place of their many sins. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. He spoke truth. He spoke the truth about man, and he spoke the truth about God, and he spoke the truth about himself, and he spoke the truth about the day of judgment. Everything that he said is true. We take all that he says, all of his words, and we embrace them as the truth of God. Now, this brings us in conclusion to the question, what does all of this have to say to us? Why did the word become flesh? In other words, why did the word become flesh? And the Bible gives to us two very fascinating reasons. And the one is so that he could enter into our humanity. Unto the end that he could be a merciful, faithful, and sympathetic high priest. So that he could know in heaven now, even as he intercedes for us, what it is to be a true person. I mean, we say at times, right, this is our grand excuse at times, well, I'm only human. I'm just a person. You know, you, what, what can you expect of me? I'm only, I'm only human. I'm only flesh and blood. And usually that's, sometimes that's an excuse for our sin or our bad behavior. But sometimes it's just the reality. I don't get to do all that I want to do. I can't accomplish all that I want to accomplish because of the weakness of my humanity. And he enters into that weakness, in a sense, mercifully and sympathetically. So that he knows. He knows what it is to be a child. I don't remember being a baby but our Lord knows what it is to be a baby. I don't remember being a toddler. I have virtually no memories of that time in my life. But the Lord Jesus knows children who's like you. In his body, he suffered. In his body, he was rejected. In his body, friends forsook him. And in his humanity, he knew what it was like to look to the heavens and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it is to be in intense pain. And he knows what it is to die. How many of us can say that? To come along somebody sympathetically on their deathbed and say, I know just what you're going through. But because Jesus exalted in heaven at the right hand of the Father, we can take our hurt and our pain and our suffering to him because he took on flesh. But most significantly, what is being said in all of this is that he took on flesh so that in that flesh he might die. Behold, he says, it is written of me in the scroll of the book, I've come to do your will, O oh God. Why? Because you did not delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings. But he says, but a body you have prepared for me. So that when he came into the world, he said, 
Now, this is a fascinating thing to try to contemplate. I mean, theologians wrestle with when did the man Jesus, when did the boy Jesus become aware of his deity? This is a question that many people wrestle with. But one thing seems to be quite clear is that there was there was certainly in the coming into the world, in the enfleshment, in the purposeful leaving of heaven and entering into the virgin's womb and being brought into the world, there was a declaration that in this body I will do for guilty sinners what they could never do. In those hands which would have curled around the fingers of Joseph and Mary would be nailed. His beautiful little feet would be pierced his side and the blood that coursed through his veins would be poured out in a way that Paul says to the church at Eph- or the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. One of the greatest declarations of the deity of Christ to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Who was the word? What did the word do? It became flesh. What is the glory of the word? The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why did he take on flesh and blood? To be a sympathetic, merciful high priest. And that in that body that he might be offered ultimately for sinners. And so we come as we come at the end of virtually every message and that is to offer to you the words of eternal life. This is a time of year in which people think about gifts and somebody says to you, no doubt some of you have had the question, what do you want or what do you need? What do you need? So I'm going to ask you, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need now? And what do you need in the world to come? You need a gracious and a merciful and a faithful and a sympathetic high priest who has entered into the weakness of our humanity, one full of grace, full of truth, who laid down his life for us. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's mercy uh, in these things. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for these moments in your word and pray that you would own them and bless them uh, to our hearts. We ask your mercy and your grace in Jesus' name.